Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here uh, on Stand of Reason, and uh, I'm glad to be able to chat with you a little bit today. I have uh, I've just been thinking a bit about my my boyhood um, and how much I enjoyed it. And th- in fact, things didn't really get challenging for me and, uh, until uh, I was a almost a senior in high school. And that challenge just came from the challenge of emancipation from a very controlling father. I'm not going to get into that. I want to talk about the the boyhood that I had that was so fabulous. And the reason was I had a tremendous amount of freedom to be a boy, to play, to have adventures, to get out from underneath the scrutiny of adults. And I don't mean like, okay, now I can do whatever I want to do, although, you know, I did some crazy things sometimes that my parents wouldn't have approved of. But I'm I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about the things that it seemed like all of us had the latitude to do when we were kids. So I was born in 1950, the first, almost the first five full years of my life, I spent on a farm. And on Good Friday, 1955, our farm burned down right to the ground. We got out in the middle of the night and just barely survived it. And my dad packed up his four kids, and we moved back to Chicago where he was from, gave up his dream of being a farmer in northern Wisconsin, and uh, looked for work and had to file bankruptcy and he was, what, 26 years old, four kids, with another on the way. There was five. But we had a pretty tight shot group, as you can imagine. So I'm a year and two weeks younger than my sister, eldest sister, and then Mark is two years from me, and Dave is two years from him, and Bonnie, who came after the farm, was two years from him. So us, all three boys, we were within four years of each other, all right? And I remember growing up at the north side then, kindergarten and uh, first, second, third grade, the north side of Chicago, uh, just a couple of blocks uh, south of Evanston, and I could hear the the cubby, you know, Wrigley Field, I could hear the cheering, that's where I was at. And there was a big park across the way for a bus, and there's a big bunch of gardens that were on the other side of the park, and we used to cross the road and catch snakes and catch bats and spiders and all kinds of crazy things. And uh, we used to walk to the Adelphi Theater on Clark Street. That required going down Rogers Avenue to the railroad tracks and then going like four or five or six or seven blocks along the railroad tracks to be able to then cross over to Clark Street to the Adelphi Theater where we'd get a double bill for 25 cents on Saturdays. And when I say we, that would be me and my brothers, probably, maybe my sister. So I left there when I was 11. So that, I mean, we were pretty young. Okay. And we were off on our own. Okay. Here's a quarter for each of you and a dime for something to eat a snack. Now, it was a bummer for us because popcorn, which was the favorite delight, was 15 cents. So we would scrounge around looking for pennies people dropped so that we can get our 15 cents to buy the popcorn. But we, we're on our own, is the point I'm making. So we left our place, walked up the street, two blocks, then 
down five or six or seven blocks along the railroad track area where we played sometimes. Sometimes we took the street and off to the Adelphi and then back when we were done after the double bill. That would mean two movies for 25 cents. And uh, we did that on our own. Then we moved out to the northwest suburbs, brand new area, Prospect Heights at that time. Had a block of a subdivision kind of thing and everything beyond that was all cornfields. And from the time I was in fourth grade, so what is that, like 10? Until uh, I graduated from junior high, and then we moved to another location. We were out in the cornfields during the summer (laughs) and during the winter and along the creek, building forts and pulling up weeds that had sharp in it and making spears out of it and throwing it at people and fishing for crawdads in the creek. And where were we all day? Just adventuring. And guess what? Mom didn't even know where we were. We only had one car then. Mom was at home. Dad was out working. But we were on our own. Okay, you got your chores done? Get out of here. Have fun. We had bicycles. No helmets. Nobody even thought of a helmet. Forget about that. Everywhere we went was on bicycles unless we're treading through the the cornfields or the soybean fields or the bear fields if the harvest is out. And in the winter, I remember being caught, the three of us, my brother, two brothers and I, in a big snowstorm way out in the field somewhere. And we just crawled into a little hut that was built for pigs and waited out the storm. And then when the storm was over with, and it was a big one, we crawled out and then hiked across the field and went home. No big. I got my first gun when I was 12 years old. It was a 20-gauge shotgun. My brothers and the same Christmas got a 410. It's a smaller gauge. I was 12, my brother Mark was 10, and my brother Dave was 8. And then my dad would take us out and teach us to hunt. We hunt rabbits mostly. And uh, we learned how to skin rabbits, cut them up, prepare them for dinner, clean our weapon, how to hunt safely. I was 13 years old. 12 years old. By the time I was 15, I was hunting on my own. We moved to Southern Illinois, and then I'd go out hunting squirrels all by myself with my 20-gauge. No problem. No big deal. Then when I was in high school, my junior and senior year, you know, my daughter right now lives, we live, let me put it this way, one mile exactly from my daughter's high school. One mile. Now, I know this sounds like I'm making this up, but this is the truth of the matter. When I was a junior and senior in high school in Chicago, I lived one mile from the bus stop. And rain or shine, snow or blow, we had to hike a mile to get to the bus stop for a five-mile trip on the bus to get to high school. And the same thing in reverse. And uh, we just did it. Because we were raised by members of the greatest generation. And the old wisdom that we were raised with from my parents, who both were born in 1929, my dad was born on October 29, 1929, was the day that the stock market crashed. And my mom lived in the projects in uh, Chicago. And my mom and dad, my dad was an orphan. His parents died when he was 10 years old, got killed in an 
auto accident. And so, you know, that's the background. And this is and these guys survived and they worked to get it done. Then they had a big family and there was like a handful of five kids and we were off doing our thing. By the time I was uh, 17 years old, I joined the Army. Uh, and uh, after my period of active duty, I was on my own. And the parents didn't pay a dime for college. They never paid anything for—they didn't buy me a vehicle. They didn't even pay for insurance so I could drive their vehicle. I did it all on my own. And I was bugged at the time. Holy cow, my friends, they're paying insurance. Their parents paid the insurance. They could drive their parents' car. Look at me. I got to ask my girlfriend's mom to drive us on dates. But I'm telling you, I look back on that, and it was great. I think this was the best thing that could happen to me. I learned from a young age to take responsibility, to deal with hardship, to solve problems, to get things done, and to move forward. And even now with my own girls, my 16-year-old has her driver's license. Okay, great. I called the insurance company. I said, what does it cost to put her on our insurance? That's going to be $50 a month extra. Okay, darling, I need 50 bucks every month or you can't drive. Same thing with the telephone, $55 a month. Okay, she's got a pony up $105 a month. This is a small way of taking some responsibility for her life. But I'm telling you that compared to the way we grew up, um, that's a small modification. Most of our kids' lives are wildly, let's see, different <laughs> than what I had. And that's unfortunate. Um, I The old system that I grew up with was basically do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. You're bummed out. You fell down. You skinned your knee. Okay, sorry about that. Get up and move on. <laughs> Life is hard. Get used to it. So the mentality was so different for me growing up and for many who are my age can remember that what the greatest generation tried to pass on to some degree because of the hardships they faced with the Depression and with the Second World War. And so the ethos was so much different than it is now. Now I say all this to, um, uh, to offer some thoughts here uh, from Abigail Schreier, who has written another book, her first book, I'm not sure if that was her first book, but certainly the book that she's well known for is Irreversible Damage. And this is about the terrible circumstances of uh, transgender operations and what they're doing to our the young ladies in our midst, the young women, the teenage women in our midst. And the title is appropriate, Ir Irreversible Damage. Her new book is called Bad Therapy, <laughs> Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up. And in this article here, I'm going to read some of it from you, where she gives some reflections on where Gen Z is right now compared to where other generations have been, especially me as a boomer. And that's not a good place. This article is titled, it's a long title, How Touchy-Feely Parenting and Therapy 
have created the loneliest, most helpless, depressed, and fearful young people ever. Okay, now it's it's actually just released today, and it's 101 on Amazon. So it's one off the top 100. And I'm glad to see that because she's a very significant writer. She She's a player, and she has important things to say, and there's been a, a huge effort to try to silence her, especially in light of her book, Irreversible Damage. Uh, incidentally, this is hardbound right now on, on Amazon. It costs 30 bucks. I was pretty stunned to see that. So I was just out of curiosity. I checked her numbers, and she's at 101 at the moment, which is fabulous, the top 101 books in the entire Amazon universe right now. So, um, but what she says here was, um, let me just offer a couple of thoughts. I'm just going to breeze through the article. It's a longish one. It's worth reading, but it's meant to kind of give a thumbnail sketch of what she covers in the book Bad Therapy, and it's good to understand because we absorb the values of our culture. We absorb the way of thinking about things like our own children. And what what does it mean to raise healthy kids? And when I say healthy, I mean in the broadest sense of the word. And the understanding of what healthy is now is very different than what it used to be. And also the means to accomplish that end is quite different. And this is part of her concern. She writes, when we were little, and actually I don't even know how old she is, Abigail Schreier, so I don't know what I don't think she's a boomer. I, I've seen pictures. She's a lot younger than me. Who follows the boomers? What's the group after? I can't keep track of all. This is a Gen X? <laughs> okay. Amy doesn't know either. When we were little, she writes, my brother and I were occasionally smacked by our parents. So was I. Our feelings, actually more than occasionally, as it turns out. Our feelings weren't considered over important decisions. We would go to school. I'm sorry. Our feelings weren't considered over important decisions. Where we would go to school. Nobody asked us that. Okay. How often we visited our grandparents. What sort of clothes we'd wear. If we didn't like the food set out for dinner, no alternative menu was offered. If we lacked some right to express ourselves, it never occurred to us to question it. But as millions of men and women my age, I'm, oh, here she says, I'm now in my mid-40s, entering adulthood, we signed up for therapy. We explored our childhoods and learned to see our parents as emotionally stunted. We vowed that our child-rearing would be different. We would cherish our relationship with our children and tear down the barrier of authority that past generations had erected between parent and child. And by the way, it was, let's see, mid-40s, it was about when she was born— when things shifted, where, and of course I remember this, it was a big standout, when parents, when I was a kid and growing up even as a teenager, parents were addressed by their last name. I mean, adults were. Mr. This or Mr. That. And then it got changed to we can all call them by their first name. Because we were like peers, right? That was cool. Call adults by their first name. All right. She continues, more than anything, that's part of what she means, the barrier of authority that past generations had erected between parent and child. We're going to tear that down. More than anything, she writes, we wanted to raise happy kids. We looked to the experts for help and devoured their best-selling parenting books. We never, ever smacked. 
An ideal childhood meant no pain, no discomfort, no fights, no failure, and absolutely no hint of trauma. But the more closely we tracked our child's children's feelings, the more difficult it became to ride out their momentary displeasure. The more closely we examined our kids, the more glaring their departures from an endless array of targets, academic, social, and emotional, appeared. In a panic, we rushed them to mental health professionals for testing, diagnosis, counseling, and medication. We needed our children and everyone around them to know they weren't shy. They had social anxiety disorder. They weren't poorly behaved. They had oppositional defiant disorder. They weren't disruptive students. They had ADHD. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't theirs. And she says, this is a generation strikingly different from those prior to it. According uh, members of Generation Z, those born between 95 and 2012, that would be both of, both of my children, would be Zs. They're, listen to this. This surprised me when I read this. They're less likely to go on dates, get a driver's license, hold down a job, or socialize with friends in, in person than, say, millennials that be born between 80 and 94. I guess maybe she would be a millennial. Schreier. A lot's likely to do that than, than all of the millennials at the same age. So something's changed, right? Here's another thing that was shocking. She writes, they also engage in the least amount of sex while arguably having it most easily available and report having the fewest romantic relationships. They are reluctant to cross the milestones, promotion, marriage, starting a family, at which previous generations eagerly launched themselves. Bosses and teachers confirm this analysis, reporting that members of Gen Z appear utterly underprepared to accomplish basic adult tasks, including showing up for work. The truth is that these mental health interventions on behalf of our children have largely backfired. And I skipped over some material that talked about, here's, here's how we decided to fix all these phobias and problems and anxieties that kids had. We gave them drugs, and we sent them to the psychiatrist or the psychologist and had counseling and everything, and it didn't, didn't work. It backfired. At best, she writes, they have failed to relieve the conditions they claim to treat. But far more likely is that they are making young people sicker, sadder, and more afraid to grow up. Let me pause for a moment. I'm just thinking uh, about just the ethos of my own childhood and in, into emerging adolescence. Everyone wanted to be a grown-up. Kids wanted to be grown-ups. We wanted to be adults. We wanted to be respected for taking on the responsibility that adults took on. Now, of course, every generation has its own kind of uh, identity struggles. And by the way, even to use that language, now it means a whole lot different than what it did then. We're be- we were children, now we're pro- becoming adults, and what does that look like? That's what it was. It was just standard emancipation from family to being our own people. It didn't have all the kind of identity baggage that it has today, where we are we are ta- uh, tasked with 
creating our own identities out of whole cloth, because nothing is stable anymore, not even our sex slash gender. Okay? No, we wanted to be grown-ups. We wanted to be viewed as competent people who could manage responsibility. I think that was— and there were exceptions to this, of course, but this was this was our, our idea. We just wanted to be viewed as grown-ups, not as kids. But now we have kids that are afraid to grow up, meaning they're afraid to take the kinds of responsibilities that are characteristic of grown-ups. Getting a job, showing up on time, getting married, having children— Between 1990, she writes, and 2007, the number of mentally ill children rose 35-fold. Less than 20 years, it increased to 35 times. Now, this might be due to overdiagnosis or the expansion of definitions of mental illness, she points out. But uh, it doesn't completely explain the pervasive distress felt by young people today. One psychologist who specializes in child, adolescent anxiety, and depression worries that a lot of the therapy directed at children is useless. For most problems, she says, individual therapy has almost no proven benefit for kids. And yet, countless psychotherapists continue to offer it. You might call their efforts bad therapy, the sort of thing that a malevolent mastermind who actually wanted to induce anxiety and depression in children might prescribe. It's not working. All right. And uh, she goes on to say later in the article, you know, you know, we're all so concerned about all of these anxieties that kids are struggling with and talk about your feelings and focus on And she said, look, a, little do- a dose of repression appears to be a fairly useful psychological tool for getting on with life for some even for those who are significantly traumatized. Okay, bad things happen. Got it? All right. Let's move forward. Rarely, she writes, do we grant children that allowance. Instead, we demand that they locate any dark feelings and share them. We may already be seeing the fruits, a generation of kids who can never ignore any pain, no matter how trivial. And with regards to banishing chaos from your child's world, which is one of the psychological motifs that are offered to kids who are struggling with life, she said, look, banishing normal chaos from a child's world is precisely the opposite of what you would do if you wanted to produce an adult capable of enjoying life's intrinsic bittersweetness. This is how life works, all right? Today's children, she says, are always under someone's scrutiny. At home, parents are watching them. At school, they're being observed by teachers. Out of school, they're in adult-directed activities. They have almost no privacy. Actually, adding monitoring to a child's life is functionally equivalent to adding anxiety. When psychologists do research, they want to add an element of stress. So how do they add it? (laughs) When they do that, they simply add an observer. So the, he, she's going through and kind of itemizing some of the things she talks about in much more detail in her book that are causing problems. And I told you about my life growing up, because 
I never faced any of this kind of stuff. I never heard of ADHD. Now, there are kids who have problems. I get that. We have dyslexic kids, for example, and they have learning disabilities because their dyslexia hasn't been diagnosed. And once it's diagnosed and treated, fine, move ahead. But sometimes there's overdiagnosis. Sometimes there's over-scrutiny. Hey, let's just get on with it. Now, I'm trying to think of the name of this movie about, uh, goodness, Temple Grandin. There it is, Temple Grandin. Watch this movie. Temple Grandin was, was she schizophrenic? Is that? No, no, she was, um, she was autistic. And it was pretty bad. But her mom, this is a fabulous movie, Temple Grandin, G-R-A-N-D-I-N. Just go rent it, watch it, whatever. Because here was a story of a woman who really rose above this problem, this autism, and found a way to use it to great advantage of herself and to others. Uh, she was a powerful pioneer in the agricultural industry, cattle, actually, and in apertoires, uh, you know, cattle slaughter places and stuff like that. Uh, and she ended up getting a Ph.D. She's still alive. In fact, at the end of the movie, Claire Danes plays the character uh, Magnificent. But what her mother wasn't satisfied with saying, okay, you've got a problem. Poor you. Let's accommodate. She said, get to work. You deal with it. We're moving ahead. And uh, this was in a time when there wasn't that much sympathy for people with serious um, disabilities like that. They didn't understand it. She was made fun of. Nevertheless, the ending is—it's a powerful movie, and the ending is—man, I wept and wept because the ending is so— touching, and just thinking about it now gets me choked up a little bit. So Abigail Schreier says at the end of her article, so what can we do about it? And she says, trust yourself, not the experts. Trust yourself, not the experts. We know that children need space from adult oversight. They thrive with independence, a certain level of responsibility and autonomy, and indeed, failure. They never learn to do things for themselves if we do everything for them. Risky play involving heights, sharp tools, and some actual danger. Not only—and I experienced that like crazy— not only rewards children with joy and social competence— it may well make them better able to navigate and assess risks in their future. Now, just pause, okay? Oh, risky stuff. Well, then they're going to get hurt. Look at it. I had a practice of swinging on the swing across uh, the street in the park, Pottawatomie Park in Rogers Park, north end of Chicago, and getting as high as I could and then just flying out of that thing and landing on the ground. I did that like forever until I broke my arm. And I looked down, and my arm was all twisted in a weird way, and the bone was sticking out of the skin. And when I went to the hospital and they put a cast on me 
from my shoulder all the way down to my wrist, and I actually spent a couple of nights there. While I was there, they wheeled in my other brother, who had just been hit by a car. We were both in the same hospital room. Now, he wasn't badly debilitated, but he had gotten a bump and banged up a little bit, and there you go. Both of my brothers had rabies shots because they got bit by things <laughs> that might have had rabies. Once a dog and one a squirrel or something like that. Why, they're playing with things. So there are risks involved. But, you know, we survived, and most kids do. And I got a scar on my arm now. It's just my—I can still see it, where that bone was sticking out. It's my little uh, badge of honor there. All right? So things can happen, but that's the way life is. She continues, stop act acting as if your child will die if she doesn't get her snack, or that he'll fall apart if he's made to sit next to an obnoxious child. Stop implanting your worries in their heads. Stop monitoring and evaluating everything they do, and stop overpraising them for doing things that aren't hard. You're not spurring them on to adulthood. You're insisting they always regard themselves as children. And she gives one good example, because as researching, re- researching this book, she, she, she realized she needed to change some things. And here's what she said, I pressed my sons into household errands. I sent them on scooters to the supermarket with an empty backpack, a list, and a credit card. Now, no amount of pleading and hectoring had, had persuaded them to talk to adults on their own, keep track of their belongings, and write things down. But under the pressure of this errand. They looked for cars before they crossed the road, kept track of my credit card, carefully scanned my list, and asked shop assistants for help. My sons began, for the first time, to take note of their surroundings simply because I had got out of the way. So go on, stop hovering, stop the monitoring, stop the constant doubt, and stop the diagnosing of ordinary behaviors as pathological. That's her advice. And after I read this yesterday, I read the whole article. I've just given you little bits and pieces, snippets of it, to give you a sense of what she's saying and part of my own autobiography. To dovetail with that and to encourage you about the wisdom of this way of thinking, my daughter ran into a problem. She had no transportation for an event today. She had to go one place and then had to be another place. There was a gap in time and no one to take her because I was here and my wife was on jury duty. Both cars were gone. Oh, no. Now what? Both of these things are obligatory. And I worked with her a little bit trying to talk, okay, I'm going to help you solve the problem a little bit. And it was so frustrating. Finally, I just said, look it. I have my car. Mom has her car. There are no cars. So we, you've, you have to solve this problem without our cars. And finally, I got frustrated. I said, look it, okay, you take care of it. And I walked out. It's up to you. You take care of it. She's 16. Guess what happened? When we were talking, it was like, oh, no, there is no solution. I'm trying to suggest maybe some solutions. I get pushed back. I said, okay, I'm done. Guess what? She worked it out. Within an hour, it was resolved. She had it all taken care of. 
but she wouldn't have had it taken care of if we had just given her the car or got her an Uber or whatever. She fixed it because she was capable only though when she was required to do it without my intervention. So I had an immediate opportunity for application. And I generally, I mean, I'm in sympathy to, given my background and my own history, sympathy with to what Abigail Schreier has written about here. So uh, even so, I am a product of my culture, and it's very easy to hover too much. And uh, this book is worth reading for many of us with kids, especially Gen Z kids. And any following, I don't even know what the new generation is they call them. I, I lose track of it. I thought Gen Z was fine because they just ran out of letters. But now they found new ways of characterizing whoever follows Gen Z. Anyway, let's take a break. I'll be back in just a moment with some of the calls. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. All right, we're just fresh off of the Dallas reality. Uh, completely sold out, 2,778 young people there. Uh, that church, Cottonwood uh, Creek, uh, expanded their auditorium by 400 seats and actually sold out faster this year with 400 extra seats than did, they did last year. So this, I think, is the biggest number we've ever had for a reality outside of uh, that massive church in Minneapolis, Grace Church Eden Prairie, which holds almost almost four thousand there because it's such it's the biggest church in the state. Okay, so Texas is behind us, but Pennsylvania is coming up. Philly, March twenty second and twenty third. Okay, and just saying here, the main auditorium is already sold out. That's eleven hundred. We have eleven twenty three. There's two hundred in the overflow room. That means we've got uh, one hundred and seventy seven seats available. In the next, what, two and a half weeks? That's what I think it is, or maybe it's three weeks. 
Uh, so if you have not signed up for the Philly one and you're interested uh, in that reality, it's a fabulous reality. Okay. Uh, Sean McDowell is uh, on board with that. The uh, um, Lynette Garrison, uh, Christopher Yuan, uh, um, Tripp and Megan Allman, and all of our team are going to be there. It's just fabulous. It's about identity and really important. Who are we? Man or maker? Who says who you are is the title. All right. So uh, we'll be in Pennsylvania and Philly on March 22nd and 23rd, and in Georgia, April 19th and 20th. We got 340 people already signed up for that. And that's two and a half months, maybe two months away, about two months. So uh, the place to get the information is uh, realityapologetics.com, and you can sign up there. And by the way, the one in Dallas was just, uh, we have a live streamed it. So it is actually available uh, for, well, the live streaming is done now, but the all the recordings are still available so you can get a package. If you go to realityapologetics.com, the details are there. Uh, this weekend, I'll be at Desert Apologetics uh, Anchored Conference in the Palm Springs area, Indian Wells. I'll be there. Alan will be there. Robbie will be there. John will be there. And a whole bunch of other speakers. Okay, the details are—that's Thursday through Saturday, February 29th through March 2nd. So this is the LA area. And uh, Tim Barnett will— and, Go to, look at, I'm trying to think. Just go to DesertApologetics.com, I think. It's the Anchored Conference. It's, you should find it with a Google uh, search. Tim Barnett will be speaking at Broadway Christian Church in Mattoon, Illinois. So he's coming south of the border, Mattoon, Illinois. That's Saturday, March 2, this coming Saturday. And then right after I finish the work in Palm Springs, I come back on Sunday and Monday. I go to Tucson, Arizona, and uh, that would be Monday, March 4th. And uh, it's the conference is March 4th through March 6th. It's the Calvary Tucson Apologetics Conference. And I'll be speaking there, I think, on March 4th, because I come back on the 5th. But there's more there. And then I'll be heading up to uh, Anchorage, Alaska, to speak at Mountain City Church on Sunday, March 17. So that's Mountain City Church in Anchorage, March 17. And uh, my my son is going to travel down from uh, that other city further north, name of the Anchorage, <laughs> where he lives, uh, to come to that conference with me too. But maybe you'd like to make that trip. Whatever your trip is, Anchorage will be in that area. All right, let's let's uh, let's go to our callers right now, and uh, let's talk with Tim in Arlington, Texas. Tim, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Sorry, feels kind of weird. I've never done this before. Um, anyways, um, we're holding an open dialogue between an apologist and uh, an atheist at our church. Okay. And I was just talking to one of our church members, and he was not really thrilled about it. He felt like this is a this potentially could have those weaker in the faith persuaded toward atheism, and I just kind of. And I, I worked hard. I, I'm the one that put this event together. Uh, I've been trying to get more apologetics events into our church, and uh, and I don't know. I feel conflicted, and I just I don't know. I was looking for your thoughts or what what your ideas toward that yeah. comment would have been. Well, I think the ideas are great. That having uh, I have debated 
atheists in the past. I have debated people who are moral relativists. I think I've done maybe eight or nine or maybe ten debates. I'm kind of past my debate stage, but a lot depends on the capability of the debater, okay? Um, I don't think having a debate like that in a church is in itself a problem, um, because the, the, the conviction is that the ideas well represented by the theist, the Christian theist, are going to demonstrate that the atheist view is weaker, okay? Is there a risk? Yes. Whenever you have a debate, there's a risk, okay? Um, but nevertheless, characteristically, especially if the debater is, is capable, like William Lane Craig, for example, characteristically, the, the, the things go the other direction. A lot of people at debates are already locked into their view. They're not going to change no matter what's said. And when I debated um, a professor over at uh, University of Calgary, John Baker, a number of years ago on relativism, um, as it turned out, the atheist society that asked him to debate me were apologizing to me for his poor showing. And so they weren't persuaded, of course, by me because they were committed atheists, but they acknowledged that he did a really poor job. Now, the reason he did a poor job, in my view, is because he had the wrong view, not because I was clever and he was not. Yeah. And and therefore, the Christians that were there were very satisfied with what happened. They were encouraged, not discouraged. Is there a possibility that someone might think that the atheist is doing a better job? Of course, that's always a liability. But there's always a possibility, too, that the Christ, some non-Christians are going to become Christian. And it's also the possibility that Christians are going to be strengthened in their convictions, and atheists are going to be weakened in their convictions, even though they don't change their mind right then. So I, I guess it really—in general, I think this is fine. I've, been, I've done debates. Usually it's a neutral forum. It's not in a church. But sometimes it's been in a church. And, um, and others— like William Lane Craig is probably best known for his debate with others. And the first debate I saw that he did was at Willow Creek, and it was it was magnificent. The guy was the best the best atheist they could find, and he he was trounced um, on the merits. Now Bill isn't harsh in the way he debates, but when you you compare one point of view to the other point of view, it it wasn't there was no contest. And a massive number of people changed their mind when they did the polling as a result of that debate in favor of Christianity. Uh, and I don't think in that particular debate anybody switched the other way in favor of atheism. So, uh, I, I, yes, there's always a risk, but, you know, you take the risks because the cost-benefit ratio is, is going to benefit us First, because we have the truth, and secondly, this is kind of presuming that the Christian debater is up to the task of communicating the truth effectively. Now, if you have a really, really lousy debater, well, you know, what are you going to do? You, you, you know, then it's not a good idea, but you, know, you just want to make sure you have somebody at the church that is capable of making the case. 
And the advantage for us is I th- the truth is on our side. I know it sounds self-serving, but I'm just trying to do an analysis here. It's our arguments for God are really good. The arguments for atheism are virtually non-existent. So I don't think there's a problem here necessarily. A lot depends on who the guy, whoever is representing the Christian theist side. Well, the speaker that we have coming, um, you may even know him. His name is James Walker. He's the president of Watchman Fellowship here in Texas. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just, I'm acquainted with him. Yeah, we've started to become friends and gotten to know each other. And he's the one that's coming out. And then an atheist called Bill Cluck is okay. coming out. But it's not so much a debate that we're going for. It's just an open dialogue. And the idea, I got the idea from watching Sean McDowell. He, he was having just more like a conversation. And it was at a church. I can't remember the person he... Well, he to. did. He, Sean did a, a conversation-like thing with... Um, uh, who's the... Um, Matthew Vines, thank you. Amy's reading my mind here. Um, he had he did a, a thing with Matthew Vines, the so-called Christian homosexual advocate, and uh, that happened at my church. Yeah. So uh, that's probably what you saw. And Sean was very capable, had a great attitude, and hold Matthew held Matthew Vines um, Vines feet to the fire very appropriately. And it was it worked out well. I actually saw Sean do another um, debate like that conversation type debate with another individual who was he tried atheism for a year. And of course, when you try it for a year, it it feels pretty good. And so then he stayed atheist, and that was the the guy he had this kind of discussion with. So that that kind of environment, this kind of discussion approach, I think, is a great way to approach the issue. Uh, to to deal with, um, you know, this is better than like a formal stand-up thing, the way Bill Craig does it, you know. So yeah. uh, it's just more warm and friendly, and, and Sean is especially skilled at that approach. So I don't know about uh, the Watchman Fellowship guy. He is certainly capable. I don't know if he's more capable in a conversational format than he is in a kind of a straight-up debate style. But... Uh, uh, I don't know, but you, 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 it, you've got a good guy there on your side. He's fully capable of holding his own in the debate. So I, I don't—do you have some tool to assess the impact on the crowd that you're going to use after the debate is finished? Um, no, to be honest, I did not think about that. This is the first time I've been trying to organize something. I'm fairly new to apologetics. Yeah. And- I've gone to y'all's conferences the last couple of years. Uh-huh. I've been taking some classes through Cross-Examined. Good. Um, reading books. I've read your book, Frank's book, uh-huh. um, Paul Copen's books. Uh-huh. And, and I'm pursuing, going to be this fall pursuing my master's in Christian apologetics. Oh, theology, well, good for you. That's great. Well, see, you're, get, you're so, getting up to speed yeah. on this. You're the organizer, though, so you have a little different responsibility here. And what I suggest is that you have a device that you develop that that assesses people's response. And, and the way the question to ask is, I think, um, first of all, what was your view when you came in? And the question is where then the and you're gonna to have to 
I'm not going to give you the exact wording, but what you're looking for is the movement. Not did were you an atheist who became a Christian? You you might have that in there, but you want to know did you move more towards the the view? Were you strengthened in the view you had, or did you move somewhat towards the other view from where you're at? Because that's significant. If an atheist becomes, um, in a certain sense, more sympathetic to deism or theism rather than he was when he, even though he didn't become a Christian, that's still progress. That's gardening progress, in my view. And so you want to be able to, in your assessment device, you want to be able to to ask the question that will help you to know if there's been movement. So on the one hand, did you, where, what were you when you came in? Okay, first question, atheist or theist? Next question, what were you when you went out, atheist or theist? Then you get a, a clear picture of who changed sides completely. Then you can have a question that says, um, that has to do with, did you move closer or further away or whatever? You have to figure out how to word that. But you see what I'm trying to accomplish, right? Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, then you'll have assessment. And, and I, I'm, look, at, I'm pretty, pretty confident that uh, your Christian speaker is going to be really effective at moving people closer having a salutary effect regarding their view about God. Right. So it's going to be a net gain, even if there are occasions if some people might be discouraged. You'll find that out from the polling. And so make sure that everybody gets a device that they fill out before they leave. Okay. All righty. I'd be curious, um, Tim, when is the debate? It's this Sunday... March 3rd. Oh, it's James, coming up. All right. Yeah. Okay. James and, is going to be speaking in the morning at our Sunday morning service, then in the evening is when the dialogue is to take place. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. So you're going to have to get on the ball just to get those things printed out so they're available for Sunday. But it would be great if you could call me back. I'm very curious what the, what the, um, what the polling reveals after the debate. All right. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Nothing to worry about, though. I think you're doing a great thing. And I think on balance, it's going to be a real uh, a, a, a benefit to us. And uh, that's because the arguments on our side are really good. The arguments on the other side are virtually non-existent. And uh, you have a very capable person depending on, defending our view. Right. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate y'all and what y'all do, and I will let you know what happened. Okay, look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. All right. Bye. Okay, bye-bye now. All right, uh, let's see. we got about yes, wow, six minutes to go. Let's t- talk to Julie in Washington. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just put that in. Hold. Wait, what happened to Julie in Washington? Oh, here we go. There you are, Julie in Washington. Hello, Julie. Hello? Yes. Hello? Sorry, my bad. No, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Um, so um I uh I was a Christian like for the first 20 years of my life and then I ran away from God for the next 20 years of my life mm. and then like I recently came back to God and during the last 20 years when I was running away from God, I got married. Okay. Mm-hmm. So my husband's not a Christian and um you know, and I'm actively going to church now, and you know, um, mm-hmm. just 
trying to, you know, just, just really trying to like be the Christian wife and the Christian, you know, person good, I'm supposed to be. Good, good for you. Of, good for you. You know, and the, you know, and the woman of God and everything. And, and, um, and I, and I know, I know a lot because I was, as you would say, indoctrinated into like, that was my life for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my will against my will at sometimes, you know, cause like I just had very strict Baptist parents, but anyways, so my husband's kind of agnostic is what I've kind of figured out. Right. Um, and, um, you know, so, you know, so the whole God conversation is kind of difficult to have with him because he's like, uh, you know, if there's a God, then, you know, science will prove it or whatever. Right. Um, okay. but, but the, one of the big issues that we're having are the, one of the big conversations that we have is he is like the church, the church's whole thing that first of all, the Bible was, um, man-made, right. And that, that the churches was man-made and that it's all to control people. Okay. And, and it's like, and these are, you know, these are, these are things that I would tell him or that I have told him in the past. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, like, because I, I didn't have the best experience growing up in the church. Yeah. And um, so I just I just wonder if there's a way to have a conversation. Sure. Okay. Let me jump in because we only got about three minutes to go. So um, yeah. the the uh, I, I think I have a fairly clear picture here. Um, these are kind of standard objections that have to do with cultural concerns, and they don't really address the question of God at all, at least directly, okay? Some people say, I can't believe in God because of the way Christians and church and all that. Well, look at here. You could also say, uh, I, I was thinking about becoming an atheist, but then I read about all these atheists who are murderers. So I decided not to be an atheist because there were a bunch of atheists that were murderers. And Mao Zedong for one, Stalin for another, Lenin for another, uh, Pol Pot for another, okay? Well, what would an atheist say? An atheist would say, well, that doesn't mean that God exists just because there are people who are atheists who are murderers. We're not all murderers, which is true. Okay, So, so because atheists acted in a way that wasn't becoming... (laughs) doesn't mean that atheism is false. Mm. And do you do you follow the point I'm making? Yeah, I do. And, I do. And by the same token, because Christians acted in a certain way, maybe being nasty or maybe indoctrinating people or whatever, uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that Christianity is false. The objection doesn't address the issue. The issue is whether there is a God or not, and you're not going to be able to tell that by looking at way how, how some theistic people behaved. And the issue is whether Jesus um, lived and died and rose from the dead or not, okay? Mm-hmm. And so when he says, well, the Bible's man-made, every book he reads is man-made, every single one. But just because it's man-made doesn't mean it's false. So notice here, I'm I'm not arguing for the authority of the Bible. That's a different thing. You know, like it's, it's the Bible's God's Word. I don't argue that with people. I just point out that just because human beings were involved in writing it doesn't mean it's false. 
because if that were the case, they'd have to empty their library of every book that wasn't every nonfiction book. Okay. Okay, so that's I, I, what I'd want to do is steer him in the right direction. Now, maybe that he doesn't want to go in the right direction. Maybe he doesn't want to consider the possibility that Christianity is uh, is true or God is real. Um, that's a possibility, and he's pushing back at, with these kind of complaints. But his complaints actually are moving against the wrong thing. He's complaining about the per church or maybe the indoctrination. That's the wrong place to start, because you can indoctrinate people even even though the thing you're indoctrinating is true. It could be true, or it could be false. You don't know that by the process of indoctrination. First, you have to figure out whether it's true or false on its own merits. And this is where arguments in favor of the existence of God come into play. We talk about these here on the show, and you can get information on our website, str.org, or arguments in favor of the historical reliability of the documents that tell about Jesus and that talk about his resurrection. And I'd recommend for that a book called Cold Case Christianity. It's an odd title, but Cold Case Christianity, it's available on Amazon right now. And uh, that would be a great one for showing the reliability of the Bible to your husband. I want to thank you for your call, Julie. There's my music. I've got to run. But uh, it's a great question, and I hope the short answer I gave is helpful to you. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Go out and give him heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.